This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Happy holidays. Gosh, I thought it was December for a moment. I thought I slept through nine or ten months. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. We do have to talk about retail because all the retailers have been weighing in uh, with their latest results. And, of course, it's the fourth quarter, uh, such a key quarter for the retail industry. And uh, today we got uh, results from Target, and that stock is rallying thanks to a solid fourth quarter earnings and an optimistic outlook. Let's get into it uh, with our Jennifer Bertashis. She's senior U.S. retail staples and restaurants analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. She's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio right here in New York. Nice to have you here. Thank you for having me. Target, a good quarter. It was a good quarter. Um, We knew it would be a good quarter because they kind of gave us a little bit of a preview back in January with regards to how holiday sales went. Yeah, Yeah, when it's good news, you get a preview. Yeah, somehow they want to tell you about it. Hey, by the way. They can't wait to share the news. Um, But they also had their investor day today. Um, And that's where some of the optimism around the stock is coming from. So talk to us about what they said about the outlook and specifically, because we constantly have a story about retailer after retailer having a tough time in this space, and yet there's been a few that are doing okay. Yeah, there are a few, and and Target is is really done a great job of sticking to the plan that they set out two years ago to really revolutionize their business. Um, And the the strategies that they've put in place are really starting to shine through. And so as we look forward to 2019, you know, we see that Target is really poised to get back to sustainable earnings growth and delivering consistent results again. And that's got a lot of people excited about the stock. And what has been the the secret to that? What's been the key to them being able to turn it around? Well, it's really been a, a combination of things. They've really worked on their online mm-hmm. um, and you know, stabilizing that platform, encouraging people to do that. Private label has been huge for them. So they've launched a lot of new brands yes, that are I've exclusive that. to Target. You can't get anywhere else. And that's bringing people into the stores and driving online. And then they've been really rolling out how they service customers. So you can go to the store. You can order it online and have it shipped to your house. You can go to the store and pick it up. You can go to the store and they'll bring it to your car. So they've really been rolling out these services, and their customers are really responding to that. Chip and Joanna Gaines, right? right. Exactly. Isn't that one, one of the, one of the brands. Lines? You know, it's interesting. Oh, yeah. You were right? talking about this recently. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I've noticed, and I've noticed in the stores that there is a change. I also think what's interesting in terms of their online strategy, and I'm not usually someone who does this, but they now, like, you can scan your items and see for the coupons. Yeah. And they make it so that you get the discounts. And they've actually make it made it a pretty easy product to use and a pretty easy app to use. They have. And, and in addition to that, they've even you know put some new functionality in there where you can you can now kind of plan your space and you yeah. can see how target items look in your room. Yeah, amazing. Um, and it, it helps people with decorating ideas and things like that as well. So it's, it's really very interesting. So if they're winning, who's losing? Who are they? Who are they sort of yeah, who do they uh, outfoxing? From, right? Yeah. So a lot of the um, a lot of the smaller companies is where Target's gaining their market share. Um, the, the easy layup last year was Toys R Us and Babies yeah. R Us, right? That was an easy amount of market share they could glean. Um, but they're also taking share from like Pier One, you know, companies of that that sort that are smaller, maybe more focused on just one type of product. Mm-hmm. Um, and Target has got such a range now with their private label 
you know, brands, yeah. that they're able to really infiltrate some of those those categories. We're, Jason and I are both fans of uh, TJ Maxx and yeah, all those good absolutely. places, right? But I also love Home Goods, and mm-hmm. I think this is a way of them tapping into that space because it's it is. huge. It is. And actually, one of the things that was announced um, just a few days ago is Target Plus. Um, and up to now, they haven't had a third-party marketplace on their online um, in their online offering. So, for example, it's only stuff from Target. Now they're going to start bringing third-party, curated, very much, um, you know, you know, they're going to be very careful about who they invite onto their platform so that what they bring in complements what Target offers as well. And that will make them more competitive and with Amazon sort of and like Target and Walmart. this is sort of like type sort of merchandise? What would it be? Um, so, for example, say you want a mirror. Uh-huh. Um, and it's not you, – you don't see one that Target likes, but they may offer – you know, rectangular mirrors from an, another company. Got it. Um, but they'll be very specific about who they invite onto Target.com. Had they totally gotten rid of, I remember years ago doing a story at another place, but it was this whole idea of shabby chic and people would like mix their designer duds with a cashmere sweater from Target. And they were very good at kind of providing that fun type of, especially when it came to clothing or, mm-hmm. or collaborations that brought people in. Are they done with that? No, actually they're, they're going back towards a little bit more of that. Last, the last two years are really about reinventing their own brands. Mm-hmm. And now they're going to be going back a little bit more towards those partnerships. Um, so, um, for example... Wait, there would be lines outside of a Target, like people lining up exactly. for these Missoni. collaborations. Um, the the Missoni partnerships from that. Yeah. Um, you know, they sold out within minutes uh, yeah. and in stores and on the website. Um, so they'll be doing a few more of those going forward. So what are they most worried about at this point? So right now it's... It's a question of can they can they adapt their supply chain so that they can keep up with the pace of growing online sales, um, as well as you know keeping people coming into the stores. So they had a, you know they did a lot of it's renovations. Both. It's got to be both, it's right? It's got to be both. The the sales has to be driven by both, and the renovations are great. People love these new stores, and they're giving Target a, a lift of two to four percent in sales per wow. store. But the question is, as those mature. You know, will they keep people coming into the stores? What do the new stores look like? I haven't seen a new store. New um, oh, so they've they've lowered the shelves, they've lightened it up, they've brightened it up. Um, Still a lot of red everywhere. There's not as much red. Okay. Uh, a lot of white, a lot of bright lights. Um, easy to access merchandise, so you don't have ah. big deep racks. Yeah. You have short racks. You know, things that make it easy to shop. And they cross promote, so they'll have a, a mannequin who'll have her jewelry in her bag. And her shoes, and they're all things you can get at Target. It's amazing. I have to say, I love Target. Target. I love shopping there. My kids love going I there. Know. We we go to the Palisades Mall over oh, yeah, uh, the Palisades. just across the Tappan Zee, the Mario Cuomo, Governor Mario Cuomo Bridge now. Um, and you walk through it on the way to the movie theater, and there's always something that somebody needs at Target. <laughs> there's always something. Um, Jennifer, thank you so much. Thank Great you. analysis. Jennifer Bartashas, she's our senior U.S. retail staples and restaurants an- analyst Excuse me, uh, at Bloomberg Intelligence in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Right now, shares of Target pretty much hovering near their highs of the session. They're up about 5% at $76.37 a share. Stock is now up, Jason, almost 16% this year. Yeah, you do wonder uh, what everybody is kind of waiting for when it comes to new trade deals because President Trump and his team certainly are looking to recreate or redo all of the existing trade agreements that are out there with a lot of its allies. Let's get into this because we've been focusing so much on U.S. and China, said to be close to a trade deal. Meantime, President Trump kicking into high gear with two other trading partners we're talking about 
India, and Turkey. So Sean Donnan is on top of all of this. He's senior trade and globalization reporter at Bloomberg News. With us from our Bloomberg 991 studio in the nation's capital. Got to say, Sean, I wasn't <laughs> expecting this. I'm reading in, you know, figuring we'll get an update on U.S. and China. And then all of a sudden it's like, bam, India and Turkey. What's up with this? Yeah, that was kind of a surprise. Um, <laughs> the, um, I think this is something that's kind of been developing, and this isn't just a Donald Trump thing. The U.S. and India have actually had pretty tense trade relations going back some time. Uh, a lot of that is manifested at the World Trade Organization, where India and the U.S. have often squared off in negotiations there. That's a big part of the reason uh, the Doha round uh, ground to a halt in 2008. Uh, so there's always been a kind of tense trade relationship there. And at the center of it, the kind of one one tool that the U.S. has to apply uh, some pressure is this thing called the Generalized System of Preferences, which is a terrible name for a really important program uh, that gives a lot of uh, developing countries, emerging economies, some level of preferential access, tariff-free access uh, to the U.S. economy. And what uh, uh, Donald Trump has done this week is said, that's it. I'm fed up with the Indians. We're going to end this now. And in 60 days, this program will end for India. It's a reflection of a couple of things. Uh, First of all, as you said, the trade wars aren't just about China. Um, Donald Trump is trying to rewrite America's economic relationship with the rest of the world. We'll have uh, the EU's trade commissioner, Cecilia Malmstrom, here in town uh, tomorrow in Washington. Uh, The talks with Japan that are getting underway. Um, So there's a lot more to these trade wars just than China. But it's also this kind of tension we've got now between, you know, China is the great big economic rival, the great big strategic rival of the United States. And Donald Trump's about to cut a deal, it looks like, uh, with them. And he's about to kind of step up the trade wars with some important allies, uh, strategic allies, like India, which not so long ago, people like Mike Pompeo and Mike Pence, the vice president, were talking about as a great ally uh, in terms of balancing um, China's growing power in the Asia Pacific. So help us understand that element, the timing element here, Sean, because, you know, I can't speak for Carol, she's much smarter than I am. But like, I was definitely surprised at this sort of succession of this, especially because we're we, we may be close to done, but we're not really done with with China here. So how how are they staging this? Yeah, that's unclear. Uh, I, I think one of the big criticisms I hear often here in Washington of the Trump administration is that uh, they don't seem to do strategy well, mm-hmm. and they don't seem to do some of the staging. Uh, and timing well. If you go back to last year, one of the ways, uh, one of the things people pointed to, the critics pointed to, was the way uh, Donald Trump rolled out steel tariffs that largely had allies, right. like the EU, like Canada and Mexico, before he went after China. And that made going after China a lot more complicated. Likewise here with India. I've got some questions about why India now, and it's not clear. There's also, this is a horribly sensitive time in India because they have national elections coming up in April and May, and Narendra Modi, the prime minister, is up for re-election. This is not helping his case. Yeah, I mean, the timing is... Sorry, Jason. Well, I was just going to say, plus, you know, you have a lot of political tensions in that region as well. I mean, Modi's certainly distracted by everything that's going on around him. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. There's, I mean, you know, India and Pakistan, these two nuclear-armed rivals, uh, are uh, have been taking shots at each other. We saw the the uh, Indian uh, fighter pilot shot down right. uh, earlier in the week. So, I mean, this is just uh, this is really unfortunate timing. Uh, it's unclear why the Trump administration decided to go down with this. Going to leave it there. Hey, Sean, thank you so much. Sean Donnan, he's our senior trade globalization reporter at Bloomberg News from our 991 studio in the nation's capital. I ain't no closing time. I ain't no cover charge. Just country boys and girls getting down on the bar. We don't hear enough country music on this station. There's definitely some cowboy boots have to be worn when you listen to that song, don't you think? Yeah. Do you own cowboy boots? I used to. I was just looking at a pair. It's funny that you say that. I got to go down south, though, to get the real ones. Um, So it started out as a glass door for the ag industry, hence the song, now transforming into a lot more. Uh, Today in Business Week Technology, we've got a story about FBN. It's the Farmers Business Network. Who knew? Elizabeth Dundage. She's freelance writer at Bloomberg Business Week. She's on the phone in New York. Liz, good to have you here. So what is FBN? Yeah, so FBN um, started out by doing something very basic that it's sort of amazing that farmers don't already have, which is giving them visibility into other farms. So you think about Glassdoor and you, you know, you log on, you provide information about your own job, and then you can see anonymous information that other people have submitted about their jobs. So in this case, it's a farmer submitting data from their farm, and they are then able to see, you know, how different seeds are working on other farms, how other farms are using chemicals. They're basically, like, able to just get this kind of, like, real-life farming data that they had not had access to You go to the website, it's like soil analysis and stuff. Like, (laughs) I don't have access. I guess you have to have actually log in, but it's just FBN analytics, right? This is the stuff that farmers need to know about. They really do. And previously, they were getting this kind of information. You know, there are agronomists who are sort of field doctors who come and give you advice. But a lot of this information they were getting from the very same people that sold them the seeds Mm -hmm. and the chemicals that they used in their farms. Well, and we should note, and one of the things you point out in the story is there's some really interesting money behind this company, Tomasic. Of course, you know, the well-known Sovereign Wealth Fund, Kleiner Perkins, arguably the mm-hmm. best brand name uh, VC firm out there, uh, and Google Ventures, GV, as it's now known. Uh, and so they got behind this pretty early, but they're pushing this company, presumably, uh, into a a wider aperture, as it it were, uh, into the farming business. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's attracted almost $200 million in funding from some of the names that you mentioned. So clearly, they're, you know, going to be providing more than just this this kind of information sharing capacity. Um, and, And what they are now doing, now that they're sitting on this mountain of data about how, you know, all of these products in the market work, who's buying what, they have moved into offering a lot of products themselves, sort of generics, so generic chemicals. Um, and they've recently expanded into seed, which is something that most of us don't spend a lot of time thinking about. But if you're a farmer and you grow corn or wheat or soy, seed is a huge decision well, for you. What right, are you going to grow? Right. You're constantly thinking about yield and what's going to work, right? And this is what's interesting, too, though, as you point out, uh, Monsanto and Bayer or Bayer, depending on how you pronounce it, and DuPont, right? These are the guys that have really dominated the seed market. So FBN, Farmers Business Network, giving them a way to kind of create their own seeds um, and kind of break that hold a little bit? Yeah, it's a pretty complicated um, 
industry, as I learned mm. when I was reporting this story. Um, but basically, you've got a couple of very big international conglomerates, Bayer and Dow DuPont, who really control, they have a, a really strong hold on corn and soy seed. And so if you're a farmer looking to yeah. buy those things, um, those are really going to be the two companies that you go to. Um, and FBN is coming in as sort of a, a third option. Um, and one of the, the major things that they're doing is trying to attract farmers to planting non-GMO seed. Yeah, it's in, go ahead. No, 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 sorry, you, you continue. <laughs> well, I was just thinking, you know, as, as I was reading this story and sort of about the sort of process and the supply chain, I, I candidly thought back to the last story we talked to you about, which was when you were looking at Dig In and all these restaurants here in New York City. I mean, sort of the yeah. food business at all aspects is just being really both renovated and maybe disrupted uh, by technology in, in really interesting ways. And I do feel like part of this stems from, pun intended, uh, the fact that we care more and more about mm-hmm. understanding where our food comes from. We expect, candidly, uh, more information. It feels like farmers are taking advantage of that as well. Definitely. Both restaurants and further back into the actual farming and ag are parts of the economy that have really lagged behind um, you know, the big tech innovation centers, telecom and media and, and these things. We're just now starting to see the kind of innovation in, in the hospitality industry and in the ag industry that we've seen other places. And so, yeah, you're starting to see a lot of the technology that's been around for a while finally come to bear in, in these parts of the economy. But, for what's, sure. but what's fascinating, too, and you talk about the seed market, right? The, there isn't a lot of transparency that's been out there by the big players, right? So, you know, you've got farmers, you know, buying from this market, but it's not like the prices are all up there and you know what your competitors are getting. Getting. It's been really a controlled market. Yeah, the way I thought about it was like Warby Parker. Um, mm-hmm. I think yeah. I had that in the story. Great that comparison. For, yeah. If you ever went into an eyewear shop before Warby Parker, you would kind of walk in with your prescription and say, here's my prescription. And they would say, well, okay, here are your glasses. They're $487. And <laughs> insurance doesn't cover any why. of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it wasn't clear what the pricing was. You weren't going to walk up and down you know, the street and look into every eyewear shop. So you just kind of accepted it. That's kind of how farmers have been buying seed is you just walk into the retailer and say, this is what I need. And they say, this is what it'll cost. And SBN is really opening people's eyes to thinking about, yeah. okay, you know, what am I paying That's for? Can metaphor. I get it cheaper? You know, bringing this online. So it's um, it's definitely something that farmers are, are perking up and very interested in. Well, it's also such a fascinating time. And I'm guessing you had a lot of conversations with farmers along the way. I mean, for farmers themselves, you know, we're talking about soybeans and, and other crops mm-hmm. that are very much in the political zeitgeist right. right now. And these farmers are dealing with a lot of global issues. And so if technology can solve some of the problems related to cost and procurement, it's all the more important these days, it feels like. Yeah, this is definitely um, one of the reasons why SDN has been able to get a foothold here is because um, because incomes, net farm incomes, have been down to such a great extent over the past five or six years that, you know, when things were great, maybe you didn't care so much about what your input costs were. But now that um, incomes have really come down, farmers are now looking at these things very carefully and saying, you know, if I can cut my seed costs by 30 percent, that 
is going to be a material difference for me in terms of keeping my business profitable. Well, and it's fascinating. Just think about all the online services, whether it's dating or whether it's looking for someone to fix your roof or something, right? There's all these ways where you can go and find the best provider. <laughs> Jason's laughing. But think about seeds. If a seed works and it's and it's good, you can kind of rate it and it's out there for everybody um, yeah, versus absolutely. if it's not. Jason, this is serious no, stuff. This is serious. This is serious. No, I keep going back. I love the, I love the Warby me. Parker analogy, too. I think that's so smart. Liz Dunn always... I'm thinking Tinder for the ag industry. I know. That I, seed I just, yeah, and, You know, swipe, swipe left, swipe, left, swipe right. left, right. Yeah, if, the, if it grows, if the harvest is good. Oh, Carol. Come on, okay. it can all be whittled down to that. Liz Dunn, you're the best. <laughs> always good to catch up with you. Fascinating story. really feel like we always learn something uh, when we read your stuff in Bloomberg Business Week. It is a story. It is out now on Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg Terminal, uh, featured in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week. And it makes sense that Google and Google Ventures, GV, is totally. investing, right? Because they are so data focused and you accumulate a lot more data think about how more efficient that industry can become i didn't say more better <laughs> you didn't say more better like you are mastering <laughs> the say? english language more faster yesterday yeah i, I told my sons that they're like you? oh carol Jeez. yeah we have an oh carol if i was perfect about. that would be really boring it would be i'm not so even boring. close that's why i'm always smirking at you <laughs> This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right, so now's the time in the show, Carol, where we welcome our esteemed editor yes. of Bloomberg Business Week, Joel. Be, be your boss? Does no. that make me your boss? <laughs> I have enough yeah. bosses. A bit. You're, yeah. Okay. This week, you're my boss. Okay. I'm like working through this for, for edit. Like five for this minutes. Week. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Joel Weber is here with us, along with Pat Regnier, another one of our faves, uh, to highlight a story that's in the magazine. And I think it caught all of our attention yeah. uh, this morning when it hit the terminal and a lot of readership as well. The headline, why is the stock market so old? Mega caps are one reason. So, Joel, set this up for us. So, uh one of the reasons that I think this story is really well-timed is the ongoing interest in the IPOs, right? The unicorns are sort of leaving their magical forest. Uh, Lyft beat Uber out or, you know, is inching towards that. Uh, they're not alone, obviously. Airbnb is another big one. And, and it also speaks to this bigger trend of, like, basically the lack of IPOs for a long time now. And that has big implications on public markets. And another thing that's happened is I get this sense of like it's a pond, right? And you've got these big behemoths, the Amazons of the world, and they like eating little guys. And that's basically what's been happening. Instead of IPOs, we get MA. So, Pat Regnier, is it a pond or is it a forest? What's happening here? It's both. It's, it's the wilderness. <laughs> it's a pond and a forest. It's the wilderness. <laughs> well, in some ways, it's like when you're buying a stock. In many cases, if you're buying one of these big companies, you're buying a fund. Yeah. Um, you're getting these companies that uh, are, well, it's an, it's an online market, but it's also a grocery store chain. And it's a cloud services business. I'm talking about Amazon, of course, and, and about 15 other things. So, you know, in some ways, people who are buying stocks are almost kind of getting these diversified entities the minute the, the minute they buy something and it, it seems to be ha- having possibly an effect on what the market looks like and what the volatility in the market is like i think that's a really perceptive thing and i hadn't really thought of it that way when you buy amazon think about all the businesses amazon's in it's effectively an index fund at that point it rolls up everything and so how does that change market behavior about about everything right because that one stock is a lot more than that 
Well, and I also think about just all the companies that are staying private uh, so much longer because we yeah. talk about so often how much money is out there that can fund those startup companies so that they don't have to go public uh, sooner rather than later. And I do wonder about how the market gets kind of old and dated in terms of representing what are the future technologies, the industries and businesses that are going to be around for decades to come. One of the tensions is that while you may have any given company is a more diversified entity, or at least these mega caps are. If you're out there and you're a money manager and you're trying to buy a diversified slice of the entire market, right? one part of the market just isn't there for you to buy. It's, it's uh, you know, in private equity. It's it's owned by hedge funds. It's in, Family wealth in, er, offices, right? Family wealth offices. It's an early stage venture capital. And uh, for a lot of these funds, particularly the ones that are the most popular now, which are big index funds, you're just not touching them. Um, we also like to have a little fun with our art sometimes, and there was some fun art with this. What, what did we come up with, Pat? Well, uh, we have a, a sort of a maternity ward where the baby care, the baby care is, and it's a bunch of teenagers sitting sitting <laughs> sitting sitting in the baby baskets. My nice. my original thought was sort of a teenager in a baby carriage, uh, <laughs> but that's kind of what these IPOs are. You're getting these new, fresh companies, and actually they've been around for a long time, right. and they've they've actually already done a lot of their expansion. Yeah. Well, it also speaks to this idea, what? and you point this out in the in the piece that lower volatility uh, ultimately because these they just move around a lot less and they're a little bit more predictable once they get to once they get to the market at this more mature age right once uh, once they get there but now that's like individual stock volatility and right. I think the one thing that you want to keep in mind is that like well okay this creates these sort of more placid companies but meanwhile there's the whole market yeah interesting. and one day we could all just decide that like we're nervous about all these things and we could and, we, and everything could just get yanked at once well it's sort of we sort of had that last year, right? I mean, with the with all the tech names, you know, really starting to go down uh, more or less in unison. Yeah, I, and I, you know, I trying to uh, figure out how we we ended up with teenagers in a maternity ward. Uh, not that seems kind of volatile. Or parents' worst nightmare. No, you know, you get you got the we got the the kernel of the. Idea. What's interesting though is go back to the tech bubble, right? Because those companies came out. Barely had an idea, you know, or a, a thought out strategy. They were preemies. And went public <laughs> so quickly. Maybe they were preemies, but they went public so, so quickly. And that whole market it. came undone. They're like, like the mushrooms in the forest. Everybody gets a piece. <laughs> you guys are going down a slope. So many slope. metaphors. Just saying, just so saying. So many metaphors, it, so many analogies here. But it is thoughtful about in terms of the lack of volatility, because we do wonder about how calm the market has become overall. Well, and so this was a way of sort of stepping back. Look, like we're going to talk about Lyft. We're going to talk about Uber. We're going to talk about Airbnb. Airbnb. Those stories aren't going away. What I liked about this one was this big step back. And Sarah Ponzik and Reed Pickert did it. Uh, It's in the forthcoming issue uh, on the terminal and online now. And to me, it's like it threads this perfect little needle. Let's talk about something in a different way than we usually talk about. And I thought you were going to talk about seafood and cans, but I'm going to say we can do that too. Because I heard that was a favorite story. I I mean, you've pegged that as one of the best stories Bloomberg Business Week has ever done. At least Kate Crater. Oh wait, I (laughs) I want to do a caveat because I said pursuits, which is a part of (laughs) Business Uh, Week. I'm just telling you, it's news you can use. You put good. Food in cans and it has an expiration date, but that expiration date is a long way in the future, so you can make use of it whenever you want. And they're kind of cute cans. Uh, they're very cute. Food. They're charming. Yeah, very artistic. And it we'll, tastes good. We're going to get more into pursuits uh, later in the week. Joel Weber, Pat Regnier, thank you so much uh, for stopping by. You know, you invite a couple of magazine guys into the studio, you I get know. a lot of metaphors, a lot of analogies. It's it, all happening. You guys, they're very literary. They're I very felt like literary. Like a parent in the room for a moment. 
And it is time for the drive to the close. Melda Bergen, Deputy Global Head of Equities at Columbia Threadneedle Investments, joining us on the phone from Boston. Melda, good to be with you. Same here. Thank you. All right. So I want to start on U.S.-China trade because we've been talking about it, uh, I I feel like, constantly, (laughs) candidly, Um, and more so today because we're getting closer and closer to a deal. But also the president apparently kind of expanding the scope of all these trade talks and maybe looking at India and Turkey. So as an investor, how do you make sense of where we are in this great trade debate? Um, I would say um, it's it's something we expected, meaning that um, uh, the president was very clear from the beginning he would be thinking these relationships one-on-one, so we're not surprised that um, there's no umbrella policy behind it, so it's country by country. For us, what it means, we need to go back to the basics and look at the company level and um, decide what it means to individual companies with their relationships to these countries. So it's a lot of, I would say, fundamental work and turning the stones. Yeah. Melda, what do you make of this investment environment? What do you do? What are you doing for your clients? Are you saying, wow, this is an opportunity. We think things are headed higher. Or are you saying, you know what? It's not been a, not been a bad 2019, certainly on the equity front uh, already. And maybe let's just throw some money to the side, put it in safer investments. Uh, and let's just wait and see what happens for the rest of the year. Um, we are still uh, very much actively talking to our clients about the opportunities because, again, um, these these um, policy uh, talks or the things happening at the ma- macro level, we don't think creating any systematic risk to the marketplace. So uh, we don't see any specific reason to be on the sidelines. We still think there's a lot of opportunities, specifically in equities, to invest globally and U.S. So we are really talking to them. Uh, basically, our message is to say, uh, don't make any top-down decisions. Uh, work with us, and we have a lot of opportunities at the company level that we can bring to the portfolio. And what's your biggest worry at this point? I mean, recession seems pretty far off at everybody we talk to. Um, corporate earnings aren't, aren't a big worry. Are, are we just worried about a, a black swan at this point? No, no, we don't think there is a tail risk or a systematic risk to that extent in the marketplace. Uh, the worry is always, in our opinion, is, is again, um, in, the, in the fundamental thesis at the company level, meaning uh, we make assumptions, we really uh, do a lot of work, uh, put, put uh, these thinking about our price targets, and if there is something is not working um, in the direction that we anticipated, that's always a worry. Uh, but at the very high level, uh, you know, macro level, we don't have a significant very or worry or uh, expectations of a tail event at this point. 
So, okay. So let's, let's get, let's drill down a little bit and get uh, a bit more specific. You know, is Europe, is it now time to be a little bit more aggressive on Europe at this point? Uh, and if so, where would you invest? I would say um, just, Specifically, we think the uh, correction in U.S. was overdone in the in the in Q4 at the end of the year. So uh, we definitely coming into 2019, uh, we're very uh, much looking at um, the the companies that we held in the portfolios and some of the opportunities that the market dislocation created for us aggressively. And we still think there is some leg to it. So we think the risk is to the upside in U.S. Um, Europe, there are some more macro risks like with Brexit and some of the other um, uh, macro issues like with the uh, Italy and others are surfacing. So we are a little bit more careful and uh, definitely the growth um, slowdown in Europe. So at the company level, we need to be very careful and the risk is more to the downside. So we still are uh, more positive on the U.S. side, although we expect the the growth uh, slowing in U.S. too. And growth slowing across the board or are there specific sectors where, where you feel like that could be felt more acutely? Uh, we think it is across the board and uh, we think that um, it's just going to be more, um, again, going back to where we started um, after the election in 2016, meaning um, the similar trend of, of a growth. Again, it's slowing growth. It's definitely not a recession expectations, but we are expecting it across the board. That being said, with correction um, at the end of last year, some of the um, sectors, um, namely financials and some of the cyclical sectors were penalized more than the others. So um, in that sense, some sectors might create more opportunity than the others. Where don't you want to be in this environment, Melda? Um, believe it or not, some of the de- defensive sectors like staples and utilities, we still think um, their multiples are very high compared to the earnings growth potential. So we are very careful with those sectors um, in terms of, of investing um, in those sectors. We are looking at the companies that, that have the opportunity to grow faster than the sector suggests. But generally, the multiples are very high in those sectors. Consumer still feels uh, pretty healthy here in the U.S. to you? Yes, yes. Uh, we still think there is definitely um, um, healthy consumer spending in the U.S., and we are definitely um, happy with the level of uh, leverage in the consumer um, um, balance sheet, which is much lower than what it used to be, and it's staying very healthy at this point, yes. All right, we're going to leave it on that note. Melda, thank you so much. Melda Mergen, Deputy Global Head of Equities at Columbia Threadneedle Investments, uh, joining us on the phone from Boston. You are listening to uh, Bloomberg Business Week, Carol Master, along with Jason Kelly. I do feel like we're in this market environment. We're kind of marking time a little bit. We're uh, a hair higher, but call it pretty much unchanged. But we're hovering near our highs of the session. I do think until we get some more clarity uh, on the jobs front, we'll see what we get on Friday. And then uh, whether or not, you know, the Fed starts to say something different. But at this point, they all seem to be you know, on the same game plan. I did want to mention one story that's catching a lot of attention on the Bloomberg. Wall Street firm said to agree to clean up shady CDS trades. And what's so interesting about this, this is an eight 
trillion dollar piece of the derivatives market. Uh, this was at issue uh, back during the financial crisis and ever since. You've got big, big firms involved with this. Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan Chase, Apollo, private equity firm, Aries Capital. Capital. That's a name uh, mm-hmm. we talked about last week. Got together with Mike Garagetti, the CEO over there. They are really trying to ensure that defaults, the government is really trying to mm-hmm. ensure that defaults are tied to legitimate financial stress and not just essentially traders' derivative bets. Uh, it's something that is very much front of mind. We are at this moment where regulators are paying much, much closer attention and So when you think about what can move the markets beyond the equity markets, especially in the derivatives market, this is a key piece of this. So a really good scoop uh, by Ben Bain, Silabrush, and uh, Sri Natarajan. People paying a lot of attention to that, not surprisingly. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.